Hello and welcome to Sea Change, a three-part series brought to you by the creators of In the Field. We're your hosts. I'm Samyukta Varma. And I'm Radhika Vishwanathan. Sea Change is a co-production of Societal Platform and Vaka. In this second episode, we're going to hit the road to see what societal platform thinking looks like in real life. Learn from experts about how grassroots organizations scale up and then meet a group of doctors and researchers who have reimagined how to bring medical expertise and skills to remote regions and communities. And finally, we meet the people building the infrastructure necessary to make systemic advancements in education. Isabel Guerrero is an economist with impeccable pedigree. From being the World Bank country director in seven countries, including India, Mexico and Colombia, she's also been one of the World Bank's six regional vice presidents. She's always been driven by a keen interest in poverty, a problem that has many faces, many dimensions, and one that is affected by a multitude of factors. Through her career, she's come across many organizations, committed ones, working close to the problem at the grassroots level, and has seen how they've been able to do incredible things. I managed a huge portfolio, $39 billion, um, and, but I could not get to um, innovations that were coming from the base of the pyramid. I saw a lot of amazing work being done uh, by organizations dealing with the toughest development problems, uh, but they were not able to scale. There's a lot of things we could help governments to do, like build roads, bridges, build schools, but when it came to things that require a change in behavior, like teachers showing up at school, or people moving from open defecation to uh, using toilets, we did not have the tools that were needed, and a lot of grassroots organizations did. This gap that she describes between the things that big organizations and agencies can do and the context-specific, evolved, ingenious innovations that come from locally-based grassroots organizations is well observed in development work. And it's a problem many are trying to solve. It's the problem of scale, of finding out how to get these innovations to grow, to reach more people and to make a greater impact. This interest in the evolution of organizations, particularly grassroots organizations in the development sector, led Isabel to set up Imago, named after the final stage in a butterfly's life cycle. When you're really dealing with the base of the pyramid, it is absolutely full of market failures and government failures. And if you think of a remote village, um, it's very difficult, for example, for a bank to go into a remote village. There's asymmetries of information. I got, we, in, in economics, we call these market failures. Um, there's government failures in the sense that it's very difficult for a government to reach the last mile. And so when you are in a situation like that and you're trying to make it, um, at scale. You might succeed when you are small, uh, but as you get to scale, these failures come to really bite you as an organization. Grassroots organizations often have limited resources and they may bootstrap a lot of their management systems, trading them for more time with communities. Many are also rich in amazing stories of transformative work, but very often they don't have data systems that allow them to translate those stories into numbers that they can then unlock and share in a manner that others can learn from and adopt. So how can organizations scale? We asked Isabel to tell us, 
Because of course, she teaches a course at the Harvard Kennedy School on how to scale. So first of all, there are three ways that you can scale up as an organization. One way is just to grow, not to scale by, by getting stronger, um, stronger human resources systems and grow. A good example of that is, is BRAC in Bangladesh, which reaches 135 million people, is one of the only uh, NGOs that has been able to get into that, that range. The second way is to replicate a model that has proven itself. You give standards, you give uh, business models, you give uh, methodologies, and that replicates through the world. Microfinance is a good example of that. The Grameen Bank and BRAC in Bangladesh and Axion in Latin America have been the pioneers of getting financial services to the poor. What they had was a formula, and it was replicated throughout the world. And the third one is to collaborate, which is you form a network of people. You, you don't have a specific branding there, but you have a network of people who have a, a similar aim to change the system that we, we are working on or to do systemic change. And so I think systemic change is when you have a change that actually shifts the environment where each of these individual organizations are working in a way that it makes it easier uh, to go to the next level. Shankar Maruwada is the CEO of Accept Foundation, which is trying to bring a big change in the education sector in India by improving access to learning. He's also spent some time thinking about scale and about the interconnectedness of effectuating systemic change. Think of this metaphor. There is a net, very heavy net. That net has nodes which are connected to each other. The net is very low, right? Now, imagine you're trying to lift the net by taking one node or a group of nodes and lifting it, right? You have temporarily lifted the net. But the moment you let go, it comes down. The education system in India is a bit like the net. It is extremely interconnected. It's in a state of equilibrium, which means the network of actors, the way they interact with each other, is in a state of equilibrium. So how do we begin to think about lifting the entire net? How do we reimagine distributing the resources required to bring equilibrium? Around 20 years ago, Dr. Sanjeev Arora, a gastroenterologist, began treating patients for hepatitis C in the state of New Mexico in the United States. New Mexico is a geographically large state with a low population density, under 20 people per square mile. Many people in rural areas were medically underserved, and when he began treating patients in his clinic in Albuquerque, he could treat maybe 150 patients a year, and there was an eight-month waiting period to see him. And so he decided to try something new. He formed a learning community by bringing in primary care physicians and nurse practitioners from rural areas of New Mexico that he and a panel of expert doctors would meet with for a couple of hours every week, online through video conferencing. They would present cases, and there was a communal sharing of expertise and learning. This became a project called Extension for Community Healthcare Outcomes, or Project ECHO. Dr. Oliver Bogler is the COO of Project ECHO. An immediate benefit of that was that the case being discussed, the, the, the treating physician or nurse practitioner in the rural areas got information and recommendations. But then they also, over time, became skilled hepatitis C experts and 
in the course of about a year or a year and a half, they got to the point where they were um, confident and knowledgeable enough to treat hepatitis C in their communities, and they became a local resource. Um, and the capacity in the state for treating hepatitis C uh, increased by more than fivefold. Project ECHO introduced systemic improvements to hepatitis C treatment. Dr. Arora did not create gastroenterologists. He created hepatitis C experts. So while the expertise was limited, it directly addressed one of the core problems physicians and nurses in those clinics were seeing. And now they were able to manage it better. ECHO's model has been highly effective in increasing the reach of scarce expertise and consequently improving patient care, reducing costs and stress, and most importantly, expanding the reach of medical care to underserved areas. Before Project ECHO, uh, patients would have to travel many hundreds of miles to access treatment. This was expensive and difficult. Um, after Project ECHO, uh, only the patients that really needed the expertise of the university team had to travel. And most of the more um, you know, typical cases could be treated in the, where they are, and the patients didn't have to leave. So costs were saved, stress was reduced. And um, in fact, Dr. Aurora's wait time in his clinic uh, went down to two weeks um, from eight months uh, after the Project ECHO uh, took hold. A recent report on the healthcare workforce in India by the WHO pointed out that there were on average 36 doctors with a medical qualification for every 100,000 people in India, and incredible regional disparities when it comes to access to medical expertise. The reality is that the uh, demographics and investments and training patterns in medicine mean that we are never going to generate as a, as a world the, the uh, number of experts in complex uh, diseases that we need to manage these diseases. They're, they just will never be enough experts for everybody. So we have to think of a different way of managing these complex diseases. And um, we believe that Project ECHO can be an important part of that because it deploys the expertise of a, of a scarce expert across an entire system. The, one of the things to recognize is that this kind of learning is ideal for complex situations, for complex diseases, uh, and they're dynamically complex. The ECHO model effectively moves knowledge rather than moving the people, the patients, or the doctors. And it's different in the way that it imparts skills. One thing that I think distinguishes ECHO from all other uh, modes of distance learning that I've seen is the incredibly high social element. So, you know, in, in distinction to, for example, uh, a MOOC or a, you know, a Khan Academy or a, um, an online video-based learning where you have access to tremendous resources is that um, all echo learning takes place in the context of a community, of a social community. Um, and we believe that humans learn better in a, in a community. They, they learn better when they're working as a group to solve a problem, when they meet iteratively and get sort of what we call high-frequency, low-dose learning, um, and the learning is reinforced. Project ECHO follows a hub and spoke model and has around 222 hubs across the world, in Canada, in the US and in India. Until a couple of years ago, most patients suffering from hepatitis C in the North Indian state of Punjab had to travel to the capital of Chandigarh for treatment, where the main hospital was able to treat only around 1,200 patients a year. The government then launched an integrated public health program that included ECHO, and it worked quite effectively. Here's Oliver again. Um, in the course of about two years, um, by working with about a dozen regional hospitals across Punjab, 
They've now expanded um, the capacity for hepatitis C treatment to over 45,000 um, with a 93% with a cure rate. So they went from 1,200 to four, over 45,000 patients being able to be treated. Hepatitis C treatment is not a one-shot deal. Uh, you have to sort of come back um, periodically to receive medicines. Um, and now, increasingly, patients are able to receive that care much more locally. Um, and uh, the, the, we estimate that the, the, the savings across um, the Punjab may be as, as much as uh, $10 million a year in terms of the, the um, personal costs to patients who are traveling and losing wages. There's a lot to learn from Project ECHO. It's an approach that unlocks scarce resources through a model that can be reproduced in many different contexts and for many different applications. It focuses on empowering practitioners. Their methodology requires a collaboration and partnership of different types of institutions, like government hospitals, like primary healthcare facilities, frontline health workers, researchers, and so on. This is where societal platform thinking can help organizations like ECHO exponentially grow to take things to the next level, to achieve a societal goal and affect populations at a time. When people think of affecting change for a deep, complex problem, it's assumed that it will take generations. What happens to two generations of learners? Why not do it now rather than wait for 20 years? But that's a wish, right? Education, like healthcare, affects a huge number of people. It's a challenge in a large part of the world, and it needs scalable solutions. The AICSTEP Foundation's mission is the audacious goal of improving outcomes in literacy and numeracy by increasing access to learning opportunities. But at a massive scale, we're talking about 200 million children in India, and in a very specific time frame by the end of 2020. AICSTEP has had a unique journey. They first envisioned an approach based on games to help children learn. But they soon realized that games weren't fundamental to learning and that they had to move away from a product approach. This comment by one of the ladies whom we were conducting research stuck in our mind when she said that, look, all these learning games are very nice, they're very cute, but they are like the pickle with the curd rice. They're not the main meal. They're just the, uh, they just enhance the taste. So you can't make a full meal out of pickle, but you need a little bit of pickle to make the meal interesting. In that uh, pithy analogy was a lot of insights for us. School education in India is a complex ecosystem. There are over 10 million teachers, 200 plus million students, 23 official languages, not to mention the fact that India probably has the highest number of first-generation learners in school. There are different curriculum boards and a wide range of schools, from super elite private schools to your neighborhood government one, resulting in a highly varying quality of school education depending on who you are and where you study. In India, many organizations work on many different aspects of these problems, from school infrastructure to teacher training to keeping kids in school. And there had to be a more collaborative approach that would help them reach their goal of 200 million children. Aikstep's approach was to build an underlying open digital infrastructure that could support and amplify the work of all these actors and enable the co-creation of a wide range of solutions, reflecting this diversity. The solutions could then be created closest to the context in which they needed to be applied. They see their approach as one that resolves the frictions between these co-actors. 
Nanda Nilekani, chairman and the co-founder of Eggstep, explains the three-tiered structure of this infrastructure or a societal platform. The, f- the first layer, the bottom layer of this infrastructure is a digital infrastructure. Now that would vary from, you know, use case to use case. So the digital infrastructure for education may be very different for the digital infrastructure of health. But what is sort of common about all of them is that they're designed for scale. They're designed to, uh, you know, capture the telemetry of various actions on them. And whatever tools are required that are common to all users are put into that layer so that different people can use it. So broadly speaking, societal platforms have these three layers, uh, a base digital layer, which keeps improving over time, which has as much common stuff as possible. A context creation layer, which allows different parties to create solutions to their context. And the context amplification layer, which is the layer which takes the solution which in a context and takes it out to millions of kids or millions of uh, people and so on. This led Eggstep to build Sunbird, an open source platform for learning and management designed to support a wide range of applications and solutions. Using it, the Indian government launched a national digital platform for teachers called Deeksha in 2017, reaching out to 10 million teachers. And Energized Textbooks is one initiative under Deeksha. It uses a really simple idea. QR codes printed in textbook chapters help teachers and students access learning material based on the topic at hand. And these could be videos, exercises or lesson plans. We met with Shankar in June 2018 to talk about this more. As we speak, around 200 million plus textbooks in more than five languages are being printed in five states by the respective state governments. And these are being made available free of cost to the children in government schools. So these are your regular government textbooks. The difference is in every chapter of those textbooks, there is a QR code. And when you use an app to access that QR code, it opens up a world of digital content, not just any digital content, but digital content which is relevant to that particular chapter that you are reading. Pramod Varma, Step CTO, says it's a bit like plumbing. Think of how we get water in our taps. Water comes from different sources and is treated using technical processes and is supplied through a complex network of pipes into our taps. And we consume it without always thinking about its peripatetic journey to our homes. The child has to worry about is consuming that water in the tap on that day for that topic. But the plumbing has been laid by the government. Teacher community is coming together to actually curate and provide the quality water on this thing. And NGO community and content created startups are working even one level behind them. But they're all coming through a shared plumbing so that it's a uniform experience at the end the child is getting in a protected manner. Deeksha's content is curated by teachers from across the country. It's the teachers who get to attest, validate and confirm the content that is uploaded. So imagine the power of a trusted, curated plumbing on top of which the entire ecosystem is aligned. Teachers, governments, block uh, administrators, uh, two private tuition teachers, content creators, now philanthropists, funders, NGOs are aligned on this. They're all working to create a thriving uh, micro 
सोसाइटी अराउंड दिस हाईवे गिरी आनंद साउंड बी किशोर साउंड बी गिरी आनंद साउंड बी तमिल तमिल मैक्स Energized Textbooks was launched in June 2018 and the Deeksha team is starting to follow up to see how things are working. They do this to understand what the challenges are and to see where systemic improvements can make the experience a whole lot better. We're in the southern city of Chennai, shadowing a team from Deeksha who are visiting government and private schools as part of their follow-up work. So the school has a strength of around 2400 students and around 73 to 75 teachers uh, and uh, the school is from 6th standard to 11th standard 11th and 12th uh, so it has both tamil medium and english medium so i think tamil medium is just one section in all the classes and the rest of the sections are english medium uh, there are around four sections i guess uh, for each class That's Navin Varshan from the team. The school was really noisy and we arrived just before lunch driving down a narrow lane just off one of Chennai's main arterial roads. The school is big. It's two-storied and built around a large playground. The walls are adorned with educational paintings of animals, colors, trees and flags. Blackboards placed all around carried worldly wise educational statements neatly written in colorful chalk. One said Silent means listen. They both have the same alphabets. But at lunch, the children were everywhere, and the school erupted in a cacophonous medley of laughter and chatter. Uh, so the idea will be around uh, study around awareness, perception, usage, behavior, the process they used to use it, uh, and the challenges they face. and finally around infrastructure and how they are looking at the infrastructure how infrastructures that it's helping or not and what is the exact scenario on the ground so basically around these seven areas uh, which will eventually help us to understand the entire consumption experience at some level we had the opportunity to listen in to navin's interviews one of the teachers talked about how much her students enjoyed the material on diversity that she used in one of her classes The QR code accessed cultural songs and videos from different states in the country and she said it made her lesson a lot more engaging and fun. One teacher mentioned was uh, she used to be a very she is still a very strict teacher like that's her own perception of herself but she said now students are actually looking forward to her class since she has started using the energized textbooks uh, though teachers see her as strict but now they keep asking other teachers like when will you give your period to that teacher so that we can have more that kind of a class interactive class most of the teachers told us that they use their own devices in classrooms because infrastructure seemed to be a challenge schools like this one have very few digital resources projectors tablets and high speed internet connections some may have a single smart classroom that is equipped with all but that's rare but this resource gap is still a problem Pramod sees things differently. Diksha was built so it can be used offline as all of its content can be downloaded. And he explains how these gaps actually offer an opportunity for markets to work alongside the government and society to support this initiative. And they also have a second project that provides a local intranet 
for local and offline use. And one of the reasons why Diksha is really working well is the underlying technology used for Diksha uh, is built for offline use. We what we have done through a project called Open RAP, RAP, open RAP.io is providing a local Wi-Fi enabled edge computing, a tiny device that looks like a Wi-Fi router but has a full-fledged edge computing capability and the entire design and entire code necessary to run that is open sourced. Secondly, he points out that the open source technology built for Android gives ample choice for schools to choose their own devices and it allows for the local entrepreneurial ecosystem to step in. Why did we open source it? Because we want a local entrepreneur to say, yeah, I will give you 10 open drive devices for your school and I will maintain it. That means if something goes wrong, I will give you a small annual maintenance contract because we want the local ecosystem to work. And as for the lack of devices, Pramod says that there are many ways and that the important thing is that states have choices. They are seeing states adopt different strategies from procuring smartphones for teachers to providing a shared set of devices to building a Diksha lab of sorts. And all this underlying infrastructure could also be used across sectors beyond education. Okay. One of the factors that we do discuss a lot is a social platform brings individuals to itself and connects them. A societal platform brings actors and entities responsible for the social infrastructure to come and play together. They, of course, in turn, interact and work with individuals. But it's important that the objective of the platform is not to define a solution and then have individuals come and play on it. Audacious goals can only be achieved one school, one healthcare centre, one teacher at a time. Sanjay Parohith, who you just heard, is the chief curator of Societal Platform. And he explains that a core value of this thinking is to let co-creation drive solutions that make sense, that fit, and that reflect the values and the culture in which they're trying to work. The only way that you can be successful in scaling is there's two things. One, thinking about scaling your impact, not necessarily scaling your size. And the second thing is making sure that as you scale, whatever you're doing, whatever structures you're putting in place has to be aligned with your values. If it's not aligned with your values, things are going to go right. The biggest challenge while taking good ideas to scale is that the model tends to be too rigid and too often top-down, unable to adapt to the context. It's an issue that comes up in many conferences, academic journals, and the brown paper bag lunches and water cooler conversations of social organizations. Thinking at scale using societal platform thinking is very different from thinking at scale. Building for the many is about kindling a sense of agency for all. It's about first thinking about creating opportunity, access, and affordability for all. As philanthropists Nandan and Rohini Nilekhani explain, So we think one of the key attributes of a societal platform is not the distribution of solutions, we're not saying this is the solution. We are distributing the ability for you to create solutions. So that's really very important that you're empowering each, each organization to create their own solution. And that's how you get scalability across a diverse environment. It's not one size fits all. If we have to do diversity at scale, okay, not diversity in small pockets which don't can't 
discover each other but if you have to allow diversity to play at scale i don't see how we can do it without the use of technology information technology is what we are basically talking about um i think it can allow you to enhance precisely those things that we hold dear and so that's why at least i'm a convert in our final episode we meet the people championing and fostering systemic change and new approaches to big development goals We'll hear from leaders across philanthropy, government and the social sector who are deeply invested in collaboration. Thanks to Oliver Bogler, Isabel Guerrero, Shankar Maruwada, Nandan and Rohini Nilekani, Sanjay Purohit, Navin Varshan and Pramod Varma. Sea Change is produced by Societal Platform and Vaka. Music, sound and mixing by Santosh Nataraja at Third Eye. Stay tuned for our next episode. In the meantime, do subscribe for updates on our website or wherever you're listening to the show and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. We're at In the Field India or societal platform.